You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And we are back for season two of Unbiased Science and are so, so happy that you're tuning in. This season, we want to explore lots of topics. And yes, we'll talk COVID because, you know, hello, global pandemic. But we'll also cover many other topics, including but not limited to artificial sweeteners, all things chiropractic, CBD, THC, diabetes, things like adrenal fatigue and leaky gut, which we get asked about all the time, crystals. And then, Andrea, I don't know, have you seen these (laughs) videos that have gone viral of people eating and drinking certain things that make them poop out parasites. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. The parasite diet? Okay. (laughs) So we'll get into that and much, much more. No topic is off limits. Um, If you're new here, we like to kick off each episode with a scientific question. And then we dig into the latest and greatest evidence and discern fact from fiction, or in our case, science from pseudoscience. So today's question is, what is the update on COVID-19 and variants and vaccine effectiveness? Before we get into that, we wanted to tell you guys that, yes, we're back with a new season, but we have the same partnership with Descent Pins. So in case you don't know, Descent Pins makes awesome pins, t-shirts, keychains, and more fun stuff that celebrates science, which you know we love. 50% of the profits from their science products are donated to Black Girls Code, DIY Girls, and Chick Tech. How cool is that? And if you're like us, you support science. Show your support with the Science is Real collection from Descent Pins. It includes things like beakers, telescopes, and microscope enamel pins that show off what you know to be true. Science is real. So get yours today at descentpins.com slash science. That's D-I-S-S-E-N-T P-I-N-S dot com slash science. And bonus, if you use discount code unbiased15, you'll get 15% off your order. So speaking of unbiased, Andrea, I think maybe today we can kick off the episode with a very brief discussion reminding folks what it means to be unbiased. (laughs) So I I just have to start because I know that there's a lot of people that listen to the podcast but maybe don't have social media pages or, you know, they don't necessarily follow us on Instagram and Facebook. But one one of the most common comments we get when we post things that are, in fact, data-driven but people don't like is unbiased, talk about biased science, and... More like biased yeah. science, right? <laughs> and and obviously, you know, there's a difference between not liking credible information because it doesn't align with your beliefs versus something actually being biased. 
Mm -hmm. And bias in science has a very specific meaning. Um, we do have a few posts on that. And honestly, we might, we'd need an entire episode dedicated, you know, just to, to the definition of bias. Maybe we should add that to the topic list. I think we should. Um, and, and again, it, it means, you know, it doesn't mean that we put out any and all information on a topic because there's lots of bad information. So as scientists, we're trained to discern, um, you know, what is credible and what's not credible. And when we read a study, we're able to identify certain flaws and limitations that might limit the reliability, the validity, the generalizability of findings from that study. So what we're doing is we're kind of acting like a filter and we are reading and critically appraising all of the information and the available evidence on a topic. And we're figuring out, you know, what is the best available information on a topic? And that is what we're presenting. So just because we're not putting out all information that's put out on the internet does not mean that we're biased. Again, we're doing, nothing is totally unbiased, right, Andrea? But we do our best to present the information that's the least biased. Well, and I think it's important to understand that being unbiased does not mean giving equal attention to all perspectives or all random opinions or points of view. You know, there are fundamental understanding and knowledge that we have that guide our ability to actually be able to interpret the data on top of the body of evidence. So, you know, if one random person with no scientific expertise is going to come out and say this outlandish statement, that doesn't mean that gets the same amount of airtime as 99.9% of credible data that is in total opposition to that. Beautifully said. And so I, yeah, I think we, we need to, uh, dog ear an episode on bias. That'll be a fun one. Lots of different types of bias. Again, we do have several posts on this topic that attempt to just scratch the surface. I mean, this is something that we've studied for several years. <laughs> um, but yes, that is a good topic for the future. So let's, let's dig in, Andrea. What do you think? So, you know, we've taken obviously a summer break um, from the podcast itself, but we've been very busy on social media and we, of course, have not stopped posting updates on COVID. Um, but things have changed since our last episode aired at the beginning of the summer. We ended last season with an update on the current treatments for COVID-19. And today we're going to get everybody back up to date with where we stand. Yes. And to be honest, um, you know, we are a little tired. We're a little burnt out on COVID. <laughs> I know we all are, uh, but it really, it only made sense to, to start off season two, just recapping where we stand. So as of September 21st, which is just a few days before we're recording this episode, there have been roughly 42.4 million cases of COVID and 680,000 deaths. Now, this is for sure, an underestimate of the actual total of COVID deaths, right? Um, because we know that COVID manifests in different ways. It affects every one of our organ systems. And so things that may not even seem to be, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I feel like I'm, I'm walking on eggshells here. Andrew, you might need to help me phrase this properly, but things like, you know, vascular problems, you know, people having uh, heart attacks and strokes as a result of COVID. And so many of these things are likely going 
unclassified or misclassified as something other than COVID-19. So that number, that 680,000 deaths, is definitely an underestimation. Well, and also, Jess, it's important to remember that in many places around the country, particularly areas that have low vaccine uptake right now, we're seeing the absence of available hospital beds. So there are people dying of things unrelated to COVID, meaning they're not dying because of COVID itself in themselves, but but ultimately it is related to COVID because those beds are being taken up by COVID patients. So there's other people that are unable to get urgent medical care for things like strokes and heart attacks that are unrelated to COVID simply because there are no hospitals, uh, hospital beds for them. That is a very, very important point as well. Um, over the last 14 days. Um, If you look at trends, it seems like new cases have decreased by about 12%. Um, I mean, we're hoping, we obviously just had this major spike as a result of Delta, which we will, of course, talk about. Um, But the deaths, the daily death count has actually increased by about 36%. And we see that, right? Typically, there's a lag between a spike in cases and then deaths that follow, you know, typically weeks after a a, a spike in cases. Let's talk about the world. So almost 5 million people globally have died from COVID-19. That's as of today. We're recording on September 24th. Switching gears a little bit, let's talk about vaccination. So as of earlier this month, about 55% of all Americans are fully vaccinated. Now let's just qualify that. So again, fully vaccinated means that you're two weeks out after your second dose of an mRNA vaccine or that you're two weeks out from your J&J vaccine. Now, when we say 55 percent, that number uses all people, all Americans. So that includes children in the denominator. If you talk about adults exclusively, about 75% of adults in the U.S. have received at least one dose and just under 65% of the adult population is fully vaccinated. Now, Andrea, let's talk about vaccine efficacy and effectiveness. Can you define the two for us? Yeah, absolutely. So efficacy and and often, you know, people use these interchangeably, but they are distinctly different. So efficacy relates to the effectiveness of a vaccine in a controlled, randomized clinical trial setting. So you have two distinct arms of participants. You have a placebo-controlled group. You have a vaccine recipient group. And you're looking at in this small population, obviously it's not small, but it's smaller than the world. You're looking at the proportion of individuals who have the outcome of interest. So in this case, it's symptomatic COVID-19 in the placebo group versus those that develop symptomatic COVID-19 in the vaccine group. That is your vaccine efficacy. Now, based on those efficacy numbers, then you can ultimately submit those data for the FDA authorization and now full approval for the Pfizer vaccine. And once we start administering vaccines to the general 
general population, now you're shifting into the realm of what we call effectiveness. So vaccine effectiveness is different because this is in real world circumstances where you don't have necessarily as controlled an environment. So you have differences in demographics among people who've gotten vaccinated versus those who have not, whereas in a randomized controlled trial, you actually normalize for those. We have very, very similar proportions of these individuals. So very often, efficacy and effectiveness are similar, but effectiveness can be different because it's impacted by other extraneous factors that can affect how people's behaviors change, the risks they're taking, demographic shifts, and also simply the fact that you're vaccinating many, many, many more people than you are within a randomized controlled trial. All right, so let's talk numbers. So obviously in the U.S., there are three approved vaccines. We have the Pfizer-BioNTech, the Moderna, and the J&J. Let's start with Pfizer. So back in December, Pfizer presented their phase three clinical data, and they showed that their vaccine had 95% efficacy, which is like unheard of, right? And and this, so, so this was efficacy against symptomatic illness. So yeah. having COVID and having symptoms. So I think it's also important to remember there's a lot of different parameters here. We have efficacy with regard to symptomatic illness. You have efficacy with regard to infection itself. And then, of course, you have efficacy with regard to, say, severe illness or death. Mm -hmm. So then new data came out around April of this year, and they announced that the vaccine had about a little over 91% efficacy against COVID. Again, thank you for for qualifying that. Based on how well it prevented symptomatic COVID infection, seven days through up to six months after the second dose. And really incredibly, it was also found to be 100% effective in preventing severe disease as defined by the CDC, and then over 95% effective in preventing severe disease as defined by the FDA. So there was another study, not yet peer-reviewed, that provided more new data that brought the efficacy number down to about 84% after six months, Um, but efficacy remained incredibly high against severe disease and was estimated around 97%. Yeah, and there was, and again, this is symptomatic illness, and we know that Delta has changed the story a little bit, Um, but even in the presence of the Delta variant, we're going to talk a little bit more about Delta soon, um, we are still seeing very high vaccine effectiveness against even infection itself. So a recent study just came out um, and the CDC published it. This was amongst healthcare personnel. And they actually found that the vaccine effectiveness against infection was still very high. It was adjusted or averaged out to be about 80%. So that's against any sort of infection um, and still obviously extremely high against symptomatic illness, severe illness, hospitalization, and death. Well, and that's such an important point because I know this is something that bothers both of us. There's this perception now that the vaccines are not great at preventing infection because, you know, there's a lot of talk about breakthrough cases. And yes, breakthrough cases are going to happen. Yeah. Um, But the vaccines are still highly effective against infection of any kind. Yeah, I mean, 80% protection against infection outright 
um, particularly in the presence of Delta, which which we know now has up to a thousand fold higher viral load, meaning a person who's infected is spewing out a thousand times more virus in its in their environment. That's phenomenal. And then, you know, on top of that, you have these multiple layers. So you have 80 percent against infection itself. Then you have above 90 percent against symptomatic illness. Then you have above 95 percent for severe illness. And then you have 99 percent for death. You know, I mean, it's it's they're still phenomenally effective. So you brought up Delta. So let's talk about how effective again. Right now, we're still talking about Pfizer. Um, So how effective is it against variants? So in May, Pfizer released data that showed that the vaccine was more than 95 percent effective against severe disease or death from the alpha variant and the beta variant. So uh, remember, alpha was first detected in the UK. Beta was first identified in South Africa, and that was based on two studies um, based on real-world vaccinations. And if you're keeping track of the original nomenclature, that's B117 and B1351. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, Andrea, I don't, I, I think that you, you, you might be alone there, but um, okay. So then Delta, which was first seen in, in India, we have two studies that were reported by Public Health England. So again, using data from the UK and remember that the uh, wave of Delta hit UK before it came to the US. So that's where we have, um, you know, the most data right now. And so the, that, those studies were not yet peer reviewed, but they showed that full vaccination after two doses was 88% effective against symptomatic disease and 96% effective against hospitalization. And then everyone was abuzz because later Israel, which also saw, you know, a major Delta outbreak, they reported that the vaccine's effectiveness was around 90% against severe disease and 39% effective against infection. And that was based on their population in late June and early July. Now, I'm still skeptical of those data um, because looking at the new study um, from the CDC, this is the Heroes Recover data study, um, the vaccine effectiveness that we observed here in the U.S. was more aligned with the Public Health England data, showing that it's in the 80 percent range against infection, high 80s to low 90s for symptomatic illness and above 95 percent for severe illness and hospitalization. Well, that's a really good point. 
Um, Andrea, looking to Moderna, so, you know, sometimes the studies will lump the mRNA vaccines together. Um, Sometimes we'll look at Pfizer alone because Pfizer is the vaccine that is more widely used around the world, right? Mm -hmm. There's been some chatter lately comparing (laughs) Moderna to Pfizer. Do you care to comment on that, Dr. Love? (laughs) So they're both highly effective vaccines. There have been some small studies recently recently that suggest that Moderna is a little bit better. And when they say better, they're looking at, for the most part, neutralizing antibody concentrations. Um, But when you produce antibodies against the vaccine so that you're protected against illness, you, you sometimes produce more than what you need. There's a saturation threshold. So simply looking at antibody levels doesn't necessarily tell you if one's better than the other. We haven't done a lot of investigation about the cell-related components of immunity, such as memory B cells, which are kind of laying in wait to produce more antibodies if they need to, as well as our memory T cells. Um, So it's very multifactorial. I would say, you know, we know that the Moderna dosage is slightly higher, so maybe initially it does lead to uh, a greater you know, production of antibodies, and maybe that wanes a little bit more slowly when you compare it to Pfizer. Whether or not that's going to translate to substantial differences in, you know, real-world vaccine effectiveness, I think is still up in the air. Um, We're actually in process of summarizing a recent study that's trying to answer this question. And It's also important to keep in mind that Pfizer was authorized before Moderna. So your highest risk individuals, the people that were at greatest risk because of work-related exposures or because of underlying medical conditions, they were getting Pfizer first. So when you look at breakthrough cases, those are also people at higher risk to have breakthrough cases. So there's some confounding variables that I think we we have to normalize to. Mm -hmm. Um, so, So don't be disappointed if you got Pfizer. If you hear these, you know, headlines on the news, they're both extremely good vaccines. Yeah, I think it's so ridiculous when the media does that. You know, it's like, I mean, really, it's like we're on these opposing teams and it's like, oh, Moderna's (sighs) pulling ahead. No, these are fantastic vaccines. You know, you got Pfizer, I got Moderna. I would have gotten any vaccine that, you know, was readily available. So, And, And the funny thing is here, you know, there are all these other vaccines that are available nowadays. Um, you know, for example, I'll use the rotavirus vaccine because I was talking to someone about that the other day. There are two different brands. I guarantee you don't know the brand your child got. You know, nobody aside from right now in this pandemic and maybe me because I'm a nerd ever knows what brand of vaccine they're getting when they go to get vaccinated. And, and I think this just it's a problem when we're seeing kind of science unfold in real time because you see how sometimes the the conclusion or the big takeaway gets a little bit distorted by news outlets. Ain't that the truth. Um, okay, <laughs> I know we're going to talk about J&J in just a minute, but while we're on the topic of mRNA vaccines, let's pick your, your immunologist brain here. So the other thing, so obviously both vaccines have two doses. Mm-hmm. And um, for Pfizer, what is it, three weeks in between doses? And then Moderna's four weeks in between. Yep. I was reading that... Um, 
you know, something about the how it, it's better to space have have a longer time in between doses, and that that actually leads to a more potent immune response. Is there truth to that? Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of truth, but again, it's really hard to say. You know, if, if Pfizer had three week and four week data to compare to, maybe we could say something about that. There is a process that our antibodies undergo as we're developing memory immunity called affinity maturation, and that leads to these antibodies that are being produced to essentially mature. They they mature, they have better binding affinity to the antigen. In this case, this is the spike protein of the virus, so that when they encounter it in real life, if you're exposed to the virus, um, it binds better, it may be a little bit more robust, it may be better at recruiting other components of the immune system. And sometimes that process improves with a little bit of an additional delay in vaccination because each time you get a vaccination, you're basically activating your immune response. And so there's been a lot of debate within the immunology realm. Um, We do know that some vaccines do fare a little bit better in terms of eliciting potent immunity if you extend that interval. Um, There are other vaccines that you have to administer very quickly between the two. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag between the optimal immune response as well as the nature of the pathogen that you're vaccinating against. Now, with the Pfizer and the Moderna, a lot of the interval that was determined was based on the the urgency of the pandemic, right? We wanted to find an interval that was long enough um, to elicit robust immune responses, but also close enough that you're not waiting six months to actually be protected when people are dying in thousands by the day. And so, you know, maybe that interval will change over time once we actually get the the pandemic itself under control, if this does indeed become endemic. Um, But at least right now, you know, we're considering that our primary vaccination. So I I feel like a lot of the people who got Johnson & Johnson often feel like... (laughs) Left out. (laughs) So let's talk about it a little bit. I know. I feel, I feel bad now. You know, it's important to understand that, that we're not intentionally neglecting the people that got Johnson and Johnson, um, but only about 12 million people received that vaccine. It's really not being used ubiquitously around the world, um, at least yet. And a lot of the data we have from especially Pfizer is coming from other countries because they started vaccinating before. Right. And so we're building on that. So it's it's simply for the lack of data and the fact that the sheer numbers of people that were vaccinated with the other vaccines there are, you know, there are orders of magnitude more of them. So let's just recap. So um, back in February, Johnson and Johnson reported seventy two percent overall efficacy and eighty six percent efficacy against severe disease. Again, these are fantastic efficacy numbers. Um, in August, J and J announced that new data showed that a booster shot at six months had a rapid and robust ninefold increase in spike binding antibodies in volunteers compared to 28 days after their first dose. Now that data has not yet been peer reviewed or published in a scientific journal. So Andrea, I want to pick your brain here a little bit. Um, so I know we're going to talk about boosters and Andrea sat in on all of the recent <laughs> meetings, so she'll talk to us about that. But 
Okay, so let, let's start with Johnson & Johnson. A lot of people who got Johnson & Johnson are saying, you know, should I go and get a um, Pfizer booster, a Moderna booster? What do you tell those people? Ah, oh, well... It's it's really hard to say. So, you know, Johnson & Johnson vaccine is still very effective. You know, it's still the benchmark for authorizing a vaccine was 50% efficacy. And, and that is substantial, even at 50%. We're still seeing well above that. You know, we're seeing upper 60% for infection and, you know, 70 to 80% against symptomatic illness. And it's still very, very effective against severe illness and death, even if it's slightly reduced relative to the mRNA vaccines. Now, part of that could very well be due to the fact that it's a single dose. So yeah, of course, people want to know, should I get a second dose of something because it's available? Now, we don't have concrete data to say one way or the other. But there's a phenomenon called heterologous priming, which basically is a fancy word of saying that you give one brand or one type of vaccine against a pathogen for your first dose, and then you get a second different brand or different formulation for your second dose. Um, And what that typically does is it you know, primes and then boosts your immune response, just like a normal booster would. In theory, this should not be dangerous. Um, However, we do not have data to say it one way or the other, which is why the FDA cannot authorize it. And it's why the CDC cannot recommend it. We know that people are going out and getting different brands because of sheer availability. Um, You know, we haven't been able to conduct a a randomized controlled trial to investigate the different combinations. We know other countries are doing mixing and matching schemes like in Canada um, with no adverse outcomes. So personally, you know, if you're particularly high risk and you are in constant exposure and you got Johnson and Johnson and and it doesn't seem like we're going to get any updates about a booster availability of that same brand and it's going to give you peace of mind and you're willing to kind of take that risk because the benefit outweighs it, you know, I'm not going to tell you not to do that. But again, we try to be data-driven here, and we just don't have data to say one way or the other. And I'm going to come in with my little disclaimer that you should talk about this with your own medical provider if you have any concerns. Exactly. So a lot has happened. While we're on the topic of boosters, there's been a lot of activity, Mm -hmm. Um, the focus being on Pfizer, because as, as Andrea just said, you know, the the, uh, Pfizer vaccine was the one that was first approved, right? So we have the most data on Pfizer. Um, So was it uh, the FDA's VRBPAC? Now, let me see. It's the the, (laughs) vaccine and related biological products advisory advisory committee. committee. Okay. (laughs) In beautifully in unison. Um, So yeah, so they met I guess last week, and again, we're recording on September 24th here, and they voted unanimously to offer the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID booster vaccines to individuals 65 and older and those who are younger than 65, but at high risk for severe illness. Mm-hmm. And Andrew, that was 18 to 64, right? That was not... Correct. Okay. So yeah, so that's actually an important point. So we know the Pfizer vaccine has been authorized for use um, for 
12 and older at this point, right? Mm -hmm. But it's fully FDA approved for 16 and older. Mm -hmm. And it is authorized for boosters for 18 and older. So that's an emergency use authorization for the boosters. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that there are no data to suggest that adolescents, teenagers younger than 18, particularly because they've only recently started to get vaccinated, need a booster dose at this point. Now, when the FDA met, they also um, were talking about approving boosters for people between the ages of 18 to 64 whose uh, frequent exposure to the virus put them at high risk of serious complications, um, you know, severe COVID, um, and of course, hospitalization and death. Now, interestingly, and you're the one who sat through these meetings, Andrea, so you jump in here with the details, okay. but when the CDC's ASIP, when they met, and when did that happen? Was that yesterday, two days ago? It started on Wednesday and it finished yesterday on Thursday. So it was a two-day meeting of the, the ACIP, which is the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices of the CDC. And they signed off on those first two groups that we talked about, right? The people over 65 and older, and then people people 18 through 64 who are at high risk? Nope, no. It, they actually broke it down into four votes. Um, so the first was the first, and because, and the reason this was is because of all of the discussion about this. Um, but they broke it down basically into 65 and older and those who resided in long-term care facilities. That was group one. That passed. No problem. The next vote was those 50 to 64 with underlying medical conditions. So those that could would be higher risk because of various medical conditions, which we've detailed on our social media pages. That passed. The next was 18 to 49. So basically anybody 18 and older with underlying medical conditions. That one passed. And then the last vote was 18 to 64 based on occupational risk. So high risk because frequent exposure to COVID or because you work in congregate care setting or because you're frequently in contact with people closer than six feet and things like that. And even though this was technically authorized by the FDA, the ACIP committee felt that that was opening the door to a little bit too much vague language and that people who were, say, 18 to 30 with very robust immune responses who don't actually probably even need a booster might be going out and getting them. And there was a lot of discussion about vaccine equity and, and all of that. So they actually didn't want to do that. But the CDC at large, headed by Dr. Rochelle Walensky, actually decided to go and align with what the FDA said and expanded that to everyone 18 and older based on occupational risk. So boosters are now available to anybody immunocompromised. That's a separate thing that was already authorized, I think, over a month ago, um, as well as individuals 65 and older, and then individuals 18 and over with either underlying medical issues or high risk based on institutional or occupational exposure. So that could be teachers, that could be healthcare providers, that could be people who um, live or work in congregate care settings. So that could be shelters, it could be prisons, um, all of these places that we know can drive the spread of 
of of illness. And so, Andrew, you so you just defined the um, the different occupations. Then we're talking about things like you know certain medical conditions that are considered to put people at higher risk, right? So like cancer, COPD, kidney disease, yep. um, and also people who are pregnant. Yes. Um, so have all of these things, I mean, are we, we're still waiting for, like, what's the next step? Yeah, I mean, people can go book their booster appointments. Now, it's important to understand, again, this is only for people who received the Pfizer vaccine as their primary vaccine. And for these people, this is six months or more after the, the last dose, so after dose two. So if you got your second dose in April, you're not due yet for a booster until at least October. Um, But these people can begin um, booking appointments. Um, Pregnancy is included because we know that pregnancy affects your immune system, so you don't reject the fetus. So you do have a little bit of immunosuppression. We know that pregnant people are at much higher risk for severe COVID outcomes, so the benefit of a booster does, you know, offer them that, that advantage. Now, again, People that fall particularly in the occupational or institutional risk, they really need to consider their own personal risk level. Like I said, an 18-year-old who works at a mall and maybe is interacting with a lot of people but is always wearing a mask and their county has a mask mandate, you know, that might not be a person that needs to go get a booster. But say there's a teacher who's you know, in their early 60s and they're in elementary school. So there are no kids that have been currently vaccinated. Um, Maybe their county isn't enforcing mask wearing in the school. You know, that would be somebody that I think it makes a lot of sense for for them to go get a booster dose. Okay. So what about the time frame for, well, I obviously there there are a few other things I want to chat about while we're talking about boosters, but what about boosters recommended for kids? We just, we're not there yet, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. So kids have very, very potent immune responses. Um, We know that these vaccines elicit really, really high levels of antibodies in in children. We know that children are only recently being vaccinated compared to the first round of of individuals who are vaccinated as as early as December 2020. Um, So yeah, kids are not there yet. Um, I would be very surprised if we see that at any point. I think the biggest thing aside from boosters is getting everybody who's unvaccinated and eligible to get vaccinated. So get the kids 12 and older their first rounds of vaccines. Um, We know that the EUA for 5 to 11-year-olds is probably coming soon. So once that's available, get those kids vaccinated. Um, Boosters are not going to take the place of getting as many people vaccinated initially as possible. Boosters are just going to offer additional protection to people who are already protected. So, Andrea, I mean, you you just brought up kids under the age of 12. So I have two kids, um, a three and a half year old and an almost five year old. And uh, between seasons one and two of Unbiased Science, my kids did return to school. And on day two of school, school was shut down because there was an outbreak in my son's class. Um, if, if you follow us on social media, you probably saw me weeping on our Instagram stories because it was just, you know, it was obviously very scary and it's, you, you feel terrified as a, as, a, as a parent about sending your kids in. And anyhow, I'm waiting. I'm counting down the days until the <laughs> vaccine is approved for younger kids. Obviously, everyone wants to know about timelines. We, we just, we don't have, you know, 
a black and white answer. Um, I think we expect that it'll be approved for um, five through 11-year-olds sometime in October. I think we're uh, hoping for before Halloween is what I've heard. Um, And then the younger kids um, under the age of five is not expected, I don't think, until like December 21 or Mm -hmm. even January of 22. Is that the timeline you're hearing? Yeah, and I think it's going to be, so there's kind of three chunks. There's six months old to two years old. There's two to five, and then there's five to 11. So I think it's going to be the two to five-year group that we will get toward the end of the year or early next year, and then the six months to two years old is probably going to come after that. Oh, my God. I cannot wait. Okay, let's move on. Can we talk a little bit about the prevalence of Delta? And, and well, actually, even more than well, Delta is everywhere, right? If, mm-hmm. if you're if you have COVID right now, it's almost certainly Delta. What is it? Ninety eight point six percent of all U.S. cases. Yeah, and that's a steep jump from just a few months ago. In in the week ending June nineteenth, which is three months ago, it was only thirty five percent of the cases in the U.S. So, Delta has very quickly. Um, outcompeted all the other variants of SARS-CoV-2 in the country. So what about other variants? What are we talking about? Mu and Lambda? What? What Are you concerned? <laughs> I mean, Mu and Lambda do have some concerning mutations, as does Gamma, which was quite prevalent in Brazil. Um, a lot of the similar mutations that we see with Delta are seen in these things that, you know, maybe um, enable the virus to more effectively infect our cells, to replicate a little bit faster, to avoid avoid our immune responses a little bit. And all of those things lead to things like increased transmissibility, uh, possibly more severe illness and things like that. But mu has not been able to get a foothold in the U.S. Um, It actually is declining at this point. It's now only about 0.1% of cases in the country. Delta is really where it is. Um, You know, I think... I don't know if we'll ever get fully 100% Delta, but it's going to it's gonna hover in that realm. Um, it, Delta is a superior adversary um, compared to the other variants that we have right now. Now, that doesn't mean that a new variant can't crop up and outcompete Delta. We know mutations occur as the virus spreads. Um, we know the virus spreads more amongst people that are unvaccinated because vaccines also reduce infection rates, which ultimately reduce transmission rates. Um, so there's still a huge emphasis on getting people vaccinated because as long as this virus is spreading, there's still the chance for new variants to emerge. Speaking of variants, there was a weird I don't know, conspiracy that we don't actually test for for variants. And so this is all a lie. Uh, um, I know. I know. So, no, it, you know, if, if you do test positive for covid, you as an individual, you won't know which strain of the virus you're infected with. Right. Correct. Although now it's a very safe assumption <laughs> that it's Delta. Um, but. We do, there are, um, the CDC takes some of the samples from the laboratories, right? And they'll do their own testing and they do, you know, it's, it's probability sampling. So it's not every single test that's done goes and, you know, and they do the test for variants, but there's a sample of tests that's taken and and that gives us an idea of what proportion, um, you know, is Delta and then these other variants. I mean, exactly. And it's, and it's local health departments too. So basically, 
basically when when people are getting COVID tests, you know, those samples are collected to say whether or not that person is infected. And we're using these little probes. Um, but then you still have that sample. And so we can do what we call genomic surveillance, which means we sequence the entire length of the virus genome instead of just a little piece to see if it's there. And we can actually determine what strain, what variant it is. And so, yeah, these local health departments, the CDC, a lot of organizations around the country do this with certain proportions of positive test results, and they can surveil and say geographically, you know, regionally, which regions have which variants and and in which proportions. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yes, an individual is not going to know, oh, I have the Delta variant, but we know population level wise, which variants are predominant. Right. And of course, the samples are taken from all over the country, right? Yes. So we, we want to see where which, which strains are more prevalent in the South versus the West, you know, all, all that. Exactly. All right. So, Andrea, we get the question all the time, why should I get the vaccine if I can still get COVID, right? You know, there's a lot of attention on breakthrough cases, and some people don't see the utility of vaccines. So mm-hmm. we already talked about the, fir- the first very clear reason, which is that there's a, a d- <laughs> significant significant decrease in the likelihood of infection. The vaccines are very effective at preventing infection. Next, I think there's been tons of attention on the fact that the vaccines are extremely effective at preventing serious illness. So the majority of people who we see hospitalized um, or, or, you know, and as well as those who unfortunately die from COVID, the majority of those people are unvaccinated, right? Mm Mm-hmm. The two other things we haven't talked about, one, you are definitely going to have to talk about it, but viral clearance. So if you're vaccinated, you clear the virus more quickly, right? And then the period uh, during which time you're contagious or infectious is shortened, right? So essentially, you know, first is, of course, we've heard a lot of people use what we call the base rate fallacy to kind of skew the data and suggest that more vaccinated people than unvaccinated people are getting infected. When you have a population, let's you know, use the extreme for for hypothetical. But if 100% of your population is vaccinated, then any cases that emerge are going to be amongst vaccinated people. So you could skew that and say 100% of new cases are amongst vaccinated people, but that's not the real story. You have to look at proportions. You have to look at rates. And so you have to normalize that to say, 100,000 individuals. And when you actually normalize that, we know that new cases are predominantly amongst unvaccinated people. Now, there are going to be vaccinated people that get infected and get symptomatic illness, and ultimately there will be the rare instances where where people have severe illness or death. But the proportions and the numbers of those are much, much smaller. On top of that, those that are vaccinated that do get infected – tend to have lower viral load. Now, there was an initial study that suggested that wasn't the case, and we're actually going to talk about that on social media in the near future, but there's a difference between residual RNA because your immune system has cleared the virus versus actual reproducing virus. And the study that was citing that was not actually assessing whether or not those viral remnants could actually reproduce. 
So the data we now have suggests that not only do vaccinated people have lower viral load if they do get infected, but they carry the virus for shorter duration, even if they do get infected. And the reason for that is their immune system is already prepared to recognize that virus and they're actively clearing it. Whereas a person that's unvaccinated, it takes many, many days for their immune system to ramp up and get activated in order to clear it. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, because they're clearing the virus faster, even if they are contagious, they're going to be contagious for a much shorter period of time. So overall, if you compare a vaccinated infected person to an unvaccinated infected person side by side, the risk of you getting sick from a vaccinated person is likely to be much lower than from you getting sick from an unvaccinated person. And all of these things taken together make the very clear case that vaccines do prevent transmission, right? Because they're yes. making it less likely that you're infected. They're sh- and then if you do get infected, they're shortening the period mm-hmm. during which time you, you are actually infectious. You're, you have a lower viral load. So all of these things do, I, I, it's just, it's so frustrating to hear I know. It's like, it's one of these things like it's 80% effective at preventing infection. If you can't get infected, you cannot transmit the virus. Oh boy. All right. Well, Andrea, I feel like we covered a lot of ground here. I would be very, very curious if any of the people who are listening right now, if you have not yet been vaccinated, um, if you haven't and, and, and you're willing, you know, please do send us a message where we really would be very curious to understand why it is that you are still, um, you know, is it, is it a matter of hesitation? Is it a matter of access? We'd be very curious to hear. So please feel free to reach out to us. Um, Andrea, do you want to take us home? Sure. So thanks for joining us today on our season two premiere. We hope like we did that you had a good summer off. Um, Although technically we didn't actually have the summer off, but We hoped you learned a thing or two today. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget, you can also access all of our previous episodes, our infographics, and we even have a searchable database for sources on our website now at www.unbiasedscipod.com. You can also pick yourself up some merch or you can leave us a donation. Next episode, we are actually bringing a guest on and we are going to answer the question, are artificial sweeteners really harmful? We will, of course, continue to provide updates on COVID-19 on our social media accounts, so be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah. Oh, I am a scientist.